0: Junkies. Hello and welcome back to the 12th episode of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I'm joined by fellow Polcats, D-Dog Heath. Hello. And Cadaverous Crothers. Hey. And what a day, what a lovely day this is, as we take you on an auditory tour of George Miller's vicious 2015 dystopian masterpiece, Mad Max Fury Road. Wasteland.
1: I am the one
0: who runs
1: for both the living and the dead. A man reduced
2: to a single instinct. Survive.
0: This episode, we're going to look at Mad Max's production history, discuss the film's themes and aesthetic. We'll air our interview with Luke Buckmaster, author of the new book Miller and Max, George Miller and the Making of a Legend. Damien will take us through the film's release and reception, and at the end of the show, he and Cameron will go head-to-head in our Fury Road quiz to find out who is the true, immortal Joe successor. In 1993, Warner Brothers signed George Miller to direct the science fiction film Contact, after the original director Robert Zemeckis walked off the project. An Australian director termed filmmaking prodigy, Miller was launched into the spotlight when at 33 his first feature Mad Max, a low-budget action thriller about a cop driven to the brink of madness along the highways of a desolate wasteland, became the most profitable low-budget film ever made. Two sequels followed, both filmed in Australia, After which Miller went to Hollywood and made two studio movies, *The Witches of Eastwick* and *Lorenzo's Oil*. Miller had cast Jodie Foster in the lead and Ralph Fiennes as her co-star, a role that would eventually go to Matthew McConaughey. He had some reservations about the screenplay and asked for rewrites, much to the frustration of Warner Brothers, who wanted the film ready for a Christmas release. Meanwhile, Zemeckis' latest film *Forrest Gump* opened to rave reviews and enormous box office. Warners lured him back to make contact, and then negotiated a separation package with Miller. Part of this package included restoring to him the rights of the Mad Max franchise. Miller was now back in control of the series that had launched his career, but it would be 20 years before Max Rokotansky would make his return to the silver screen. First, Miller directed Babe Pig in the City, but even as he developed this project the director continued to quietly contemplate the wasteland and what his new vision for the franchise might look like. He hired writer Brendan McCarthy to co-write the project in storyboards. In the end, more than 3,500 cells lined the walls of the Kennedy-Miller production headquarters, detailing every shot in the film. There was no question in Miller's mind that Mel Gibson would return as the eponymous road warrior. Gibson flew down for a couple of days to discuss the film with Miller, The screen legend told the director that had launched his career that he was on board, but they'd need to start shooting soon because at 45 he was getting too old to take on such a physically demanding role. Then 9-11 happened, and financing for the film fell through, so Miller reverted his attention to another kid's film, Happy Feet, which was released to acclaim in 2006. The same year, a 50-year-old Mel Gibson was arrested for drinking while under the influence. The actor resisted arrest and let out a tirade of anti-Semitic remarks that made headlines around the world and forever changed how his public perceived him. For the first time, Miller began to contemplate another actor to step in as the road warrior. He talked to Heath Ledger about the project, a young Australian actor who possessed the quote, maleness, charisma and restless energy that Miller felt was right for the project. These hopes were dashed in 2008. ...when Ledger was found dead in his Manhattan apartment from an accidental overdose. Miller would next approach British actor Tom Hardy... ...whom he'd seen as a hardened criminal in the 2008 film Bronson. Hardy signed on as Max, but asked Miller if he would set up a meeting between him and Gibson. The two met at a cafe in Beverly Hills. Gibson was two hours late, but the two had a congenial chat... ...and Gibson gave the young actor his blessing. Fury Road would mark a watershed project in the Mad Max series for many reasons but perhaps the most significant is that Max would arguably no longer be the film's central protagonist. In Miller's new film, a female warrior by the name of Furiosa would in many ways surpass Max as the film's most compelling and important character. Miller cast Charlize Theron, with filming to begin in Broken Hill in 2011, the same place where he'd filmed Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior 30 years prior. But Destiny intervened yet again. Extensive rainfall rapidly turned the arid outback shooting locations into bountiful green places, not the wasteland desert vistas required for the film, and so production had to be delayed again. The film's locale would need to move to Namibia, Africa, with principal photography to begin on the 26th of June 2012. It would last over five somewhat torturous months. During the shoot, Hardy remained in character as the mentally unhinged Max, and clashed with his director and co-star on several occasions. We fucking went at it, Theron would later report, and other days he and George went at it. Because of a traumatic incident as a child, Theron found it difficult to work with the many firearms featured in the film, and George Miller spent a day with her at a firing range to acclimatise the star with the sound of bullets discharging. Playwright and feminist Eve Ensler was invited by Miller to come to Namibia and conduct workshops with the actors. She spent a week educating them on sexual slavery and the plight of oppressed women around the world. Among the many Australian actors brought in to fill supporting roles, Miller hired Hughes Keyes-Byrne as a supreme villain in Morton Joe, the same actor who played Toe Cutter in the film that started it all. Miller shot roughly 470 hours worth of footage, which was uploaded and sometimes airmailed to his editor and wife Margaret Sixell, who cut the film from her office in Sydney. Despite Miller's minimal CGI policy, more than 2,000 special effects shots were included in a film with more than 2,700 cuts. The frame rate was also largely manipulated to speed up the film's action sequences. Cinematographer John Seal would estimate that 60% of the film does not run at the standard 24 frames per second. Two versions of the film were created, one that pared down the violence and another that didn't. Ultimately, it was the studio chiefs that opted to run with the more violent version, conceding that if the intensity of the film was compromised, it would destroy its integrity. The release of Fury Road was a major affair, trailers for the film that offered the first peek at Miller's vision went viral online. It ended up making $380 million around the world, a comparatively modest box office success given its $150 million budget. Industry insiders speculated that China's refusal to release the film hurt the film's overall box office. But it was an undisputed critical smash, with a Rotten Tomato meter score of 97%, and was nominated for a staggering 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director and one in six of its nominated categories. Two years later, the film's reputation has only grown in people's estimation. This year it was nominated by the New York Times as the 19th best film of the 21st century. So join us as we burn down the scorched highways of Mad Max Fury Road. What do you think of Mad Max Fury Road?
2: Films are always directed from a perspective, and usually, I think, in the kind of uh, action cinema that we get these days, they're directed from the perspective that you want to showcase action set pieces that you've spent a lot of money on, and the CGI revolution and everything. But with this movie, I think you really feel that they have tried to tie in classic storytelling, I guess, editing and cinematography and all of that kind of stuff into a modern action movie. So... There's so many times in films like Transformers, um, Pacific Rim, and all of those kinds of things, the Marvel movies, where viewers get completely lost as to where they are and what they're looking at, and especially Transformers. I tried to watch a couple of those not recently, but I literally do not know what I'm looking at half the time. There's just these big metal things on screen, and I get lost. They're robots. Well, I know they're robots. <laughs> But Just let you know. <laughs> I think if you look at Fury Road, where there's still... There is an equal amount of stuff happening on screen, but Miller and John Seal have done a whole bunch of techniques that make sure that you are reoriented whenever there is this action. You don't get lost during the action. They've done the speeding up and the slowing down of the film. They've done this centre framing to bring you back into it so that you always know exactly where you are at the end of this action sequence or even during a particular shot within the action sequence. The fact that you're not lost at all in this movie... You go and see a movie like Transformers or the Marvel movies or whatever, and you're just constantly lost. They could be putting anything on screen because you don't know really what you're looking at. Everything looks the same. There's no depth to any of the shots. This film is one of the great directing efforts. I think it's really remarkable the way it was shot, the techniques that they used, and I think this is the modern example of how an action film should be shot.
1: I think it's interesting that you mentioned like Marvel films and Transformers and stuff like that because I think in in this sort of Marvel age where... The next Marvel film dictates the way Hollywood's going to run almost for the next year. We indirectly start to sort of praise competence rather than originality. And we kind of go, oh, that was a competent film. Awesome. It was a great film. And it's like, it's not. A lot of the time, it's just like, you know, you've just made a decent film. You're talking about the Marvel films. Oh, yeah. Well, just like because they've desensitized us to what a good film can be. I'm just consistently shocked whenever a new Marvel film comes out and rates 90 95% on Rotten yeah. Tomatoes. And yeah, I totally agree, but I think this is I think it's a really um original film as well. Um I know it's a simple narrative, but if you can do it as interestingly as they've done it, I think it's um yeah, I it took me a while to warm up to this film and I think we've spoken about this for a little bit, I me and uh you Luke, but I mean it's it's an undisputed masterpiece. Like, yeah, like time has only been helpful to its oh, reputation, great. I think. And it's, and it's, yeah, it's one of the best films I've seen in a long time.
0: I loved it. I went and saw it with a couple of my cousin and his friend. And um, I remember at the end of the film, having to look away from the screen at the end so that I wouldn't cry because I was embarrassed to cry in front of my cousin. And then, I think about a week later, I said... I was going on and on to Damien about it. I said, you have to come to the movies. I took Damien, and then I took my mother. I saw it ultimately, I think, four times at the cinema. Mm-hmm. And I hate action movies, <laughs> and I hate Marvel films, and... I
2: think I was, was just the last time that you went to, the, to see Mad Max. You, you'd been telling me for a long time, and then, finally, we just happened to be there one day, and we decided to see it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember at the time you weren't as blown away by it as I was. I think you've come to appreciate it more. Well, when
2: you'd built it up as much as you had, it was pretty difficult for it to reach those heights. It is a true action movie. There's there's no spots in this movie where there's no action i mean they go somewhere and then they just turn around and go straight back and there's always this motion throughout the entire movie so it really is in the i guess truest word of sense of the word an action movie
0: and even though as you say cameron the story is really simple but the ideas are very complex very very complex ideas there are ideas about political oppression, about environmental disaster. And they're done in a much better way than Avatar. About religion, also about trauma. And all of those ideas are very potent and very alive and run through the film. And so even though, I mean, there's almost no dialogue, the film's about behaviour, not about words. It's all about behaviour. There's far more impact in this than in something like Spider-Man or Superman or where you can just see that it's it's all CGI and your eye sort of after a while becomes kind of tired because it's all just cartoonish. A
2: lot of this was actually shot.
0: Yeah, and you can feel that.
2: It doesn't preach on you about things that you don't really need to know. It doesn't no. have that long exposition like the majority of action films have these days. You know, they lead up to one particular story. Here it just gets started, they're looking for something... You know, spoiler alert, they don't find it.
0: There's certainly no verbal exposition.
2: No. Well, there is just at the start, I guess, Max uh his voiceover.
1: This is what it has come to.
3: Look! Out there!
1: They're coming back! R, move it! Here is where it will be decided. The gasoline, the whole compound. This is a land that prays for a hero.
0: Well, if anyone's gonna get in there, it's gonna be you. This is Mad Max 2. You've seen the Mad Max trilogy. I have. Did you see them before you knew we were doing this show?
1: Okay, yeah. So I'd seen Mad Max, the original Mad Max, um, a long time ago. Had this notion that it was a decent film, but a little bit messy and, and ochre, and like put it in the same file as I'd put a film like, sort of like Bad Boy Bubby or something in that. It's very rough around the edges. Mad Max 2 was very much like the Terminator 2 of the series, where it goes to a straight action film, pretty much. And, you know, the first Terminator is, is more of a sci-fi film that has a few action sequences in it. The first Mad Max is like an apocalyptic like film that has some really great action, but nowhere near as directed as the second one. And the third one is just an abortion of a film. It's almost like you could scrub the rest of them away.
0: But didn't you love Road Warrior?
1: Road Warrior being num- number, number two. two?
0: Yes. I wouldn't not have Mad Max 2, and I wouldn't really have not have Mad Max as well. I love both of them.
1: I think they're great films, and they're one, good examples of what, like, a really Australian sort of sense of ingenuity can bring yeah. to, to cinema. The first film especially, like, it feels almost like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I the was, lunacy of the characters. Everyone is just so unhinged.
0: Which feels true. You know, we often get these movies big movies that show like a dystopian world or a fantasy world and everyone just acts like human beings in the 21st century and what i love about fury road is that you can see that the devastation that's come before has had a irrevocable kind of bearing on how these people think and how they behave i really like the unvarnished quality of mad max that you were talking about i find that really appealing and then for me mad max 2 suddenly feels like a very polished version of the first film. And I think that Fury Road draws, of the three films, it draws mostly from Mad Max 2. And
1: I thought it was funny that there was a rumour that went around that Tom Hardy's character was the kid from Mad Max 2.
0: Yeah, which doesn't really make much sense. No. And I agree no. with you with um, Mad Max 3. I was really on board with it when I started it. But when it goes into those kids and you've got that sentimentality of the Tomorrow land thing...
1: It's the return of the Jedi of the... Mm -hmm. of of the Mad Max trilogy. They're the Ewoks. Having said that, Tina Turner looks so boss in that film.
0: Yeah, and um, the fight that he has with the ropes, I love watching that fight. I love that too, yeah. Um, The beginning and the end of Mad Max 3 fit the franchise, but there's that middle part which is just so tonally off everything that is Mm. great about Mad Max. Beyond
2: Thunderdome, I haven't watched it in a very long time. I used to own it on beta when I was growing up.
0: So that's how old he is, (laughs) boys and girls. (laughs) One thing that makes Fury Road different from the first three is that he had over a decade to finesse all of the ideas in the film. The world is so realised. Also
2: advances in technology help. And
0: budget. I was going to say, those are the two, I think, big things that make Fury Road just a little bit of a cut above. So how much was the
1: first one shot for? Half a million? Less.
0: Yeah, less. Right.
1: And they paid extras in beer. The first Mad Max wasn't supposed to be a post-apocalyptic film originally. That blew my. I'm like, it's the center point of everything, um, and it was just done for budgetary reasons because he didn't have enough yeah. money for extras and, and all that yeah. kind of stuff to like fill out the scenes. And how much that dictates what Fury Road ends up becoming is so bizarre to me. It could have gone another way completely. And yeah. How funny the direction George
2: Miller took when he got to Hollywood, though. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lorenzo's Oil and Witches of Eastwick are such different films not only from Mad Max, but from each other.
1: And then he goes on to kids' movies, four kids' movies. Yeah. I haven't seen Lorenzo's Oil. I've seen the poster, and I'm not going to see Lorenzo's Oil. <laughs> I
0: might see it because I love Susan Sarandon.
1: I love her too, and I, th- I think The Witches of Eastwick is fucking great. I love that film; it's so much fun.
0: When I was reading Luke Buckmaster's book, he talks a little bit about Babe Two Pig in the City. George Miller had kind of wanted to direct the first film, but ultimately didn't. He produced it, and so then he, when he got a chance to do the second, he did, and the film got really mixed reviews. But the way Luke Buckmaster writes about it is that it's got. Really bizarre things in it for a kids' film, like really right. adult inappropriate things. I'm like, oh, I've got to watch this! So I just like you know, rented it off of iTunes for like four bucks, and Did I watched watch it, it on my iPhone. Yeah, <laughs> so it's pretty, it's pretty weird. Like Magda Zabanski is the main actress in it. No, a good start. And when she steps off the plane, she gets arrested for potentially drug trafficking. Right. And um, <laughs> yeah, and then the pig ends up getting chased by this like carnivorous rottweiler and then he the the dog ends up hanging from this uh string and his head's submerged in water and he's like drowning and babe has to save him and it has got a lot of like dark or weird adult things in it but i actually have to say i i really enjoyed it (laughs) i can tell it's over you can't defy him Watch us, mate. He is the one who grabbed us up. Look how slick he's fooled you, world war boy. He's a lying old man. By his hand, we'll be lifted up. That's why we have his logo seen on our backs. Breeding stone, battle fodder. No, I am a You're an old man battle fodder, killing everyone and everything. We're not to blame. And who killed the world? All right, so what do we think about this idea about climate change and global warming and that being a part of the Fury Road story?
1: Global warming, it's just, a, it's just a a myth. I knew that was coming.
2: <laughs> I knew that was coming. Uh, no, I think... Um, yeah, global warming is quite an obvious
1: one. And that's, that's the idea behind this, I guess, post-apocalyptic world. Like, reviewers always tend to sort of hark on about that kind of thing consistently. And there are obviously themes in this film that relate directly to climate change in terms of like the scarcity of water the way people value um that 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 sort of thing but i don't i'm glad it's not rammed down your throat the main focus
2: on the movie of the movie is about the rationing of available supplies in this case water more than it is about climate change per se i think after this movie was uh released there was a kind of focus on the idea of climate change just because of the setting of the movie the location of the movie regardless of what the movie actually said about it itself i think it's typical of like left-wing hollywood celebrities to come out in support of the idea that there's climate change to make somewhat shocking comments saying oh if this is you know quite clearly the way the world's going to end up if we don't change something now which is what charlie's Theron said
0: George Miller said, There is an environmental story, but it's in the subtext. The sad thing is that it doesn't really require much exposition for the audience to buy a degraded world because we already see evidence of it happening all around us. The climate change, global warming, and, and nuclear disaster, holocaust, whatever. I think, really, they're all kind of under this umbrella of what human beings are doing and the impact that human beings are having on the environment. And, you know, that sentiment in the film of then who killed the world, which is a line that comes up a couple of times. I think that's a really, I think it's a really interesting thing to consider that that might be something that's being said Mm. 100 years from now. And people won't be sure where it started or how it happened. Could be two weeks at the moment with Trump. You know, climate change is sort of this broad, abstract thing, I think, for most people. Certainly for me, it is. So I just sort of tried to do a little bit of research on it. It's a term that's used to describe a prolonged change in weather patterns over the years and it's characterised by increasing warm months and heat spells but also um, an increase in extreme weather conditions. And there are many factors that contribute to climate change, which we as humans can't do anything about, like the Earth's orbital variations around the sun and volcanic eruptions. But scientists believe that a major cause of this change is an increase in CO2 levels in the atmosphere, which is brought about by fossil fuel emissions, which is the shit pumped out by places like Coal India and Gazprom. About 100 companies around the world are responsible for 71% of global emissions. The effects of human activity on the Earth's atmosphere has been termed global warming. And there are two very distinct schools of thought on global warming. There are those who believe in it and those who don't. And it's really funny, actually. Just like a couple of weeks ago, I got into a big argument with someone that I work with (laughs) because... (laughs) He denied climate change is happening. So one of these people that actually denies that human beings are having any impact, he actually denied it. And I sat there saying to him, well, look, you put aside because I can show you university from Melbourne reports that say it isn't happening. And I said, well, let's forget about all of that because you could show me one. I could show you 10 that say it is. Doesn't it stand to reason? Isn't doesn't common sense tell you that if we are putting all this shit out, noxious gases into this complex atmosphere of the Earth, that it's going to have some sort of detrimental effect on the Earth?
1: I it, it's funny, like you said, like there are people that believe in climate change, and then there are those that don't. It's more like there are people that believe in climate change and then there are the idiot. But it's disputed by, you know, usually the far right or just people that don't have access to, you know, a computer. But it's more about the way it's handled than whether it exists. I mean, I think it's come to a consensus that that it does. Like, I think it's like 97% of scientists believe that climate change and man-made, man's effect on the environment is vastly speeding up the effects of climate change. You've got the other side of it where the left is throwing everything at it.
0: The problem with this issue is that you've either got people that are denying it because they've got a lot invested in fossil fuels, there's a lot mm. of money to be lost, or you've got people that are you know, advocating about climate change, but they sound shrill and alarmist. And the reason they're doing that is because they're combating people who are idiotically, in the face of all reason, denying it. And there's just no sensible voice out there.
2: Do you know, it's just as bad, though. The right denying it, the left shrieking on about it. Those two things are just as bad. There's got to be a better discourse for all of this stuff. I mean, one of the interesting things that I heard was that now 68% of the population of the US believes that global warming is caused by human activities, which is up from 50% in 2010.
3: Boss, we're not going to gas Town.
0: Bullet file.
1: We're heading east.
0: Luke Buckmaster is an award-winning writer of cinema since 1997. is the Guardian Australian's film critic, chief critic for the Daily Review, and author of the new book Miller and Max, George Miller and the Making of a Film Legend. You write in your book that George Miller is perhaps the most, or is the most influential Australian artist of the 20th century. When I read that, I was like, wow, that's a that's a big call. But then I thought to myself that it felt right.
3: Yeah, and uh, more than that, his international impact is obviously not to be underestimated. I mean, Mad Max is like, it's like Star Wars or McDonald's and that level of brand familiarity, even the people who haven't seen it uh, know exactly what you're talking about. And the same can apply to a few other films, you know, Star Wars and Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I say the latter because I spent... An afternoon with the director of, of that film, Jim Sharman, yesterday. And uh, that's a very, another curious example of an Australian filmmaker and artist who created something that took on fairly extraordinary and unprecedented popularity. And then this artist, uh, Jim Sharman, and of course George Miller, have subsequently spent uh, years, uh, if not decades, asking themselves the question how? You know, how did this get so popular? Why? And certainly, when I spoke to Jim Sharman, he said, "I've heard a lot of theories over the years. To be honest, I don't. None of them have actually convinced me." And George Miller, to explain the success of Mad Max, latched onto the, you know, the Joseph Campbellian ideas around the, the hero and a thousand stories and a thousand faces and and, uh, and the way that you know, pop culture be it the kind that. Found on the on the on the side of caves, or, or whether it's something that you watch in, even in, a, in an advertisement on TV, it tends to recycle itself. So it's sort of spending a career and a lifetime answering the riddle of how how one achieves such success. It's
0: interesting about Joseph Campbell and how he sort of came to that realization. Was it between the second and third film? George Miller thinking about this sort of stuff. So that happened after the original Mad
3: Max, which, as you know, it's the level of popularity. That uh, film received is quite extraordinary. Mm. I mean, it made about a hundred million dollars from the box office, and while it was a huge hit in Australia, that that figure is around five five million dollars in Australia, a little bit more um, compared to a hundred million dollars overseas. I mean, that that is just an ex- absolutely extraordinary. Ninety five percent of the success doesn't actually come from Australia, and, and funnily enough, you know, it, it wasn't actually that popular in America either, so you've got this kind of, and, until the second, uh, until yeah. you, so you've got this global phenomenon, and um, so naturally, one does ask themselves, well, how did I do that, was it just luck, was it a combination of, of elements, I think it's good fortune, as, I, as I've as put in the book, certainly comes into play.
0: Yeah, but I mean, also just undeniable sort of vision and talent, and... Oh, yeah, yeah you must have been shaking your head with, like, (laughs) is this going to get any more nuts? Like, the stories are so extraordinary. Some of them are so strange. And I I seriously, it was like reading a thriller, in a sense. Like, it was such a page-turner to find out what crazy, outrageous thing was going to happen next to these filmmakers.
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, when I started doing the research really properly for for the book, uh, one of the big questions that was... Rumbling through my mind was whether some of the stories around Mad Max, and I had heard several of them uh, at that point, whether they were perhaps tales of the tall variety, whether uh, people were exaggerating, and what I what I found is I really sort of started to seriously sit down and meet all these really uh, quite wonderful people, many of them, it was not only are these stories real, but they were much more preposterous than, than I had ever anticipated and, and much more thrilling. And uh, yes, at times I was certainly shaking my head, at other times I just, I was laughing some of these people's voices in my head as I recount some of the stories. I mean, you know, Dennis Williams, the, the humble truck driver who inadvertently, through a, a, a sort of an unusual situation of misunderstanding, ended up rolling the tanker at the end of the road warrior, uh, simply because he thought he'd already agreed to do that. Um, so therefore, he didn't want to back out of it. And, uh, and I went to visit him in his uh, place in Sydney, and he's obviously remembered this story more, probably more vividly than most other things in his life. And it was just an incredible... It was kind of a combination of temerity, courage, and, uh, and sheer
0: foolishness he couldn't eat that morning because in case he needed to be kind of operated on surgically after he rolled the truck.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And before, before he's about to go down the the hill on the Monday, Monday Plains near broken Hill, he's looking at this ambulance and there's two people sitting on the, on the bonnet. And he's thinking that they're two vultures waiting for a (laughs) fee.
0: The book has so many kind of very darkly comic moments in it. The, uh, Story you told, uh, shooting Beyond Thunderdome with the pig lawsuit.
3: Yeah, that was a that was a great one to come across. One of my absolute favourite George Miller films. And in fact, one of my favourite films, uh, period, is is his film uh, Babe: Pig in the City, which is a, a little bit irrelevant to this conversation. But I put the title of that pig related legal stoush. Uh, the title of of that chapter is Pigs in the City, which is kind of like a. <laughs> And in joke. Some of my friends kind of, you know, picked it up and went, "Oh, you finally did it! You finally actually managed to put Bay Pig in the city in a in a book <laughs> and, and sell it." This was a story that I had no idea happened, and I honestly thought it was probably a bit cooked up when I when I started hearing it, and uh, managed to track down several of the players involved. And so, as you know, um, it, it it was basically a stoush between the council and Kennedy Miller. With regards to all the pigs that they wanted to use for Beyond Thunderdome, the underworld section of Beyond Thunderdome, one of the reasons why nobody has, to my as to the best of my knowledge, has ever written about this story uh, before, uh, and certainly I went went looking long and hard for any evidence of it whatsoever, was because it was the film at that time was known as The Journey, and it was given a title The Journey to deflect media attention. Obviously, by by that point, Mad Max was. Uh, incredible sensation, and Kennedy Miller and George Miller and et cetera and so forth were very high-profile figures. So I was, I was fortunate enough uh, and kind of persistent enough to track down several of the key witnesses in the ridiculous pig-related legal stouch that had the production company defending themselves against accusations that the pig urine from the pigs they were going to use was going to travel to a nearby biscuit factory or float in the air into a, a nearby a children's hospital... And it was um, quite a show, and I was I was lucky to um, track down the vet, John Holder. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever asked me about it, but it's kind of if you're if you're someone like John Holder, you're an absolute professional. You've been a vet for, for years. You're retired, and then in in the sort of recesses of your mind and memory, there's this strange thing involving this massive high-profile movie and a pig stouch. Uh, so he's probably waited decades for somebody to ask him about it, but luckily he he, uh, he was happy to talk to me and he, he was across my work and everything. So it all kind of came together, the, the pig yarn.
0: And it was interesting as well, I love that you include little things like that Tina Turner was sort of overjoyed by working with the pigs and Mel Gibson hated it.
3: Yes, yes, <laughs> Mel Gibson did not really get along with the animals so well, period, but uh, he particularly didn't like uh, the pigs and, yeah.
0: The monkey as well. Um, the monkey, yes, yeah. yes. But I think it sounded like the monkey might have had a problem with Mel Gibson first.
3: Yeah, I think the monkey had a problem with a few different people. The, the, the monkey was was bad news, and uh, and but not as bad as the camel. There was a terrible, terrible camel uh, who was um, basically giving everybody endless grief in, in Beyond Thunderdome. Uh, so yeah, there was a few, actually it's now, yeah there, there was a few very weird animal like situations that happened. Perhaps it's it's part of the process of, not perhaps, definitely part of the process of expanding the vision to accommodate children and animals. And, of course, the old adage uh, says that one should never work with either.
0: I really loved your chapters on Fury Road. thought there was a lot of information there that I, I've never seen before. Can you tell me about some of the ideas that George Miller had originally conceived for the film that didn't ultimately make it to the screen? I guess
3: the, the big one that comes to mind is that Mel Gibson was going to be Mad Max, so it was it was it was a period where, particularly when they started writing it in, in the late '90s, there was just no question. It, it would be unthinkable back then uh, that that the that, that Max Rockatansky would not be played by Mel Gibson. So, the idea was to to make uh, his character really batty, really crazy. This this man who's been wandering around the wasteland for for decades, and the idea was to really show what has, has happened to his mind. Which I think is actually a really cool idea. And you can see traces of it in, in Tom Hardy's performance and how he kind of has flashes of his, you know, deceased young child and these dream like visions and these nightmarish flashes that are coming to his head. And you can also kind of see it in, in him not talking for a while too. He's muzzled, he's Really says very very little. That was originally going to be slightly different. In that Mel Gibson's character was going to be kind of speaking gibberish, so he was originally going to be um, not talking a lot. But when he did talk, basically being nonsensical. Because again, the idea was, if you've been left alone walking in the wasteland for all these years and decades, what would it do to you? So I think that is an absolutely like a fascinating idea. You know, in many ways, it would have been a much more interesting idea than, than what they ran with, with the Tom Hardy character. Fortunately, the way that the chips fell in terms of the, the different characters on and, and pieces on the chessboard is that uh, Furioso emerged really as, as, the, as the, the protagonist in many ways, and certainly the most interesting character, I, I, I think. You know, she's really responsible for driving the story. It's her actions that are propelling the narrative.
0: She's definitely the most interesting character. And Charlize Theron had some problems with the guns and shooting on set.
3: Yeah, yeah, that that was an interesting story. I, I another one where I hadn't heard before. She had a very traumatic experience uh, growing up with uh, with an alcoholic father and uh, a deadly situation. So she had massive sort of um, skeletons in the closet and traumatic experiences with guns. Long story short, that she was. They're very unsettled by the the machinery and the the guns on set. And, you know, it's easy to think, oh, these are just movie props, but, you know, they're very, very heavy and they're very kind of lifelike. Mm. The choreographer of the fight scenes... And the and the weapons guy took took her to a, a shooting range. Had to, had to fill out a lot of paperwork and make a lot of phone calls to do that. There's very complicated insurance policies with Hollywood stars, so uh, he took her out there for it was almost an an entire day just getting her to, to repeat the same motions again. Take the gun out, you know, lo- you know, lock and load, fire it at the target, put it back, etc. and so forth to get her used to the. Uh, yeah, to used to the sound of gunfire, the ambient noise of it, and also, you know, just kind of pulling a trigger—kind
0: of conditioning therapy in a way.
3: It's one of those interesting stories that are sort of on the side of filmmaking. You don't hear a lot about this kind of this kind of stuff. It's it's sort of getting people psychologically involved in, in situations. It's uh, mm. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah,
0: I never knew any of that about her, and I saw her in that film, Monster, a few years ago. And I just thought it was one of the most incredible performances I'd ever seen in my life.
3: Yeah, indeed. I agree. Monster is a really terrific performance. It's it's one of those performances that gives the actor a great range, uh, you know, like a, a, a great um, scope in terms of being able to really um, get their kind of chameleon game on and, and change skins into something sort of repulsive and interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that was a pretty knockout performance. I, I think... With Furiosa, uh, she really understands the the, the minimalism required to, to make characters like that resonate. And, and you know, sometimes it's, it's as simple or as uh, profound, whichever way you kind of want to spin it, for an actor to let the emotions of the scene and the reactions of the audience uh, bounce off their faces. And, I, and, I, and that goes all the way back to... The effect, you know, in the early years of uh, and studies of cinema, where it's it's essentially about an actor who can look exactly the same in every in every single shot, uh, but the meaning and the emotion and the impact of the scene is derived from the images that are combined with it. Mm. Which is to say that often it's it's acknowledging that there are greater powers in in the in the process than the contortion of your face muscles. And I think Tom Hardy is coming at it from a, a little bit of a different perspective. He was more going for the method acting approach. He was more um, kind of manic and bug-eyed. And that works well, I think, very well. But Charlize Theron is, yeah, I think she's on another level.
0: Tom Hardy, I think I appreciate his physicality the most.
3: Tom Hardy's got that volcanic physical physicality that George Miller's always been looking for and for Rockettansky, mm. Found it in Al Gibson. He also found it in Heath Ledger, as I talked about in the book, uh, who was going to... You know, I mean, the deal was not done, but they had had talked on many occasions about him playing the, the road warrior. Uh, and, of course, Ledger passed away. Uh, I think it would be, you know, very interesting to contemplate what kind of volcanic performance Ledger would have had. It would have been maybe, you know, around the same kind of period as your Brokeback Mountain and your, your Dark Knight, which, which could have meant theoretically, that that Rocketansky could have had a a bit more of a kind of bisexual energy to it, which would have been a fascinating twist on the character. Maybe I'm just sort of speculating a little bit there. But, yeah, Tom Hardy, much more of a a, a macho man.
0: Uh, Luke, I won't keep you much longer. I just wanted to know, do you have a favourite in the series?
3: Oh, that's a very difficult question, Luke. (laughs) Uh, Very difficult question. So my thoughts about this kind of changed as I went through the process of writing the book. When I started out, it was it was definitely the Road Warrior. I just think it's, you know, like it, the, the chase at the end in particular, I think is is one of the the greatest chase scenes in the history of cinema. If I had to know the greatest, it would probably be that one. Uh, although, you know, it's got the benefits that maybe a great chase movie like The General, which is also one of my favourites, and Buster Keaton doesn't have in the... The general came a, a long time before it, mm. uh, so yeah, George had learnt the lesson, and you know, to, and film and screen literacy and grammar and, and improves over time. Uh, so it was going to be definitely the Road Warrior, uh, but then I uh, watched the original uh, a lot more when I started writing the book, and I just really fell for the the manic visceral charm of it, and also the imperfections. I mean, it's just it's 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 chaos, it's anarchy. And there are so many sort of small things that are kind of kooky and wrong with it, but it's in those imperfections where I think the film, and sp- particularly its energy, really shines. Uh, and then you've got a, to complicate it further. Oh, by the way, I can just completely rule out. Beyond just be Beyond Nome is not my favourite now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm with you <laughs> I'm not, on that. I'm
3: not, yeah, I'm not pioneering any, any new thought there. Um, <laughs> and then you've got Fury Road, which... It's very hard to call because it's very very fresh, and often I think the the most meaningful criticisms uh, and interpretations and even value judgments of film happen on, a, on a, quite a long timeline. So while I think Fury Road is you know it's a masterpiece, it's it's too recent to, to really kind of understand like we do the other ones. So
0: mm.
3: so then I can go and cross that one off for, for that reason, and then cross Thunderdome off. Uh, for other reasons, and then you're kind of left with the first two, and I don't know, man. It's sometimes I, you know, I, I probably will go for the one that's technically better, which is uh, the Road Warrior, and one that also embodies that manic charm, which is the first one. So, look, I'd probably have to say the Road Warrior is probably my my favorite one. But as you can see, I'm enormously kind of conflicted by that. How about you, Luke? What's what's your favorite?
0: Well, um, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I hadn't seen a single Mad Max film when I went into the cinema to sit down and watch Fury Road (laughs) and I'm i I'm not a blockbuster person. I'm not an action person, but I, I loved Fury Road. I I saw it with two guys and I remember having to cover up that I was crying at the end of the film and I was so exhilarated and thrilled and, ah, it just knocked me over I think I went and saw it about three times. I kept dragging everybody I knew to go see it with me. Before I started your book, I thought, I've and, you know, I've been putting it off and I thought, I've really got to read these other films because I'll enjoy the book more. And uh, loved the first Mad Max, really loved the second Mad Max. Third Mad Max I was on board for until the kids came into it, <laughs> which just felt so tonally wrong for a Mad Max film. Felt like really preachy and touchy-feely and, the films are kind of gloriously um unsentimental and i just i just i wasn't i wasn't on board for that at all so uh, you know for me i guess i'd probably if i'm honest i have to say fury road is my favorite but um i i loved the first two films as well and i think road warrior maybe just a cut above only because it's just slightly more refined than the the first film although I agree with you. The imperfections and the rawness of the first film are really endearing. It's a very tough call, and the same with you. It depends on what day you catch me.
3: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> you, I mean, Fury Road is, is, is a masterpiece, and certainly in terms of getting your kind of critical kudos, uh, it, 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 it received those kudos a lot quicker than, um, than the other two did. Well, definitely the first. Mm. The first was, as you know, it was quite controversial. Critics didn't really know what to do with it. It was a mixture between a, a burst of fresh air and a slap in the face, and it caused some some consternation, some confusion. Whereas Fury, Fury Road, almost everybody actually, you know, says this is one of the greatest, and it's such an unusual film. And you know, the way it, the momentum of the film just keeps on going and going and going. It's it's really for me, it's almost like a, a salute to the exploitation. Movement, uh, you know, of the 70s and 80s. This, this, this really I- idea that Australians can make absolutely batshit crazy car movies and uh, and just furiously energetic films. Uh, in reality, when you look at most of those o- exploitation classics again, with the exception of some of the Brian Trenchard-Smith stuff, Man from Hong Kong, Dead End Dri- Dead End Drive-In, Turkey Shoot. Some of it's actually you know, quite it, – it slows down on the screen. It's actually faster in the memory. But Fury
0: Road is, is really fast on the screen. It probably, <laughs> it probably actually slows
3: down in the memory. That's how fast Fury Road is. So, yeah, I love it too.
0: Yeah, I, I'm paraphrasing you, but I love the line in your book where it said it's the most elaborate U-turn ever filmed. <laughs> <laughs> What are you working on at the moment? I know you're kept very, very busy with um, The Guardian and, and with your film film reviews, but is there any, any books that we can look forward to in, on the horizon? Or? None that I can
3: confirm at this at this point. So I, I have a few ideas. I'm not really kind of keeping secret sort of thing, but I, I do mm. have a few ideas, and I want to keep kind of ideally filling these holes, you know. No one had written about George Miller and the making of the Mad Max films before, which was a crater-sized hole to fill and there are other great australian artists working in different spaces that you know are very famous and also incredibly interesting that don't have books and other things written about them so um yeah so look watch watch this space you might have to watch for a while though (laughs) these things take a little bit to write but uh but until then i'll keep I'll keep pounding the, the keyboard for Guardian and for my other publications as well. So I'm, 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 I'm keeping plenty busy, which is good.
0: Thank you so much for writing it. I had so, so much fun with it.
3: And thank you so much for that terrific feedback. That's just wonderful to hear. Thank you very much, Luke.
0: film there's this definitely this idea about religion and you know Immortan Joe he he has a a troop of half-lives and half-lives are men that are born with what looks like a kind of leukemia they have cancers and it's probably like you know leftover remnants of the radiation from all the nuclear blasts that have created this entire group of people and they're all dedicated war boys that are fighting for Immortan Joe. And he's this dictator and his power rests, as you've said, in the control of spring water that he dives out from the top of a giant cliff face. So um, Valhalla is actually something that's in Norse mythology. It's a great hall where the god Odin houses the dead, whom he deems worthy of dwelling with him, and it's reserved for those who die in battle. So that's where all of that's come from. I just wanted to say that I think that Mad Max is a really beautiful comment on atheism. I've talked to you about this, Damian. So when we first meet Knox, the half-life character, we get to know he's totally dedicated to Immortan Joe. I live, I die, I live again. Really, his dream is just to, you know, die um, in the field of battle so that he can go to Valhalla. But as the film progresses, he comes to see this I- ideology for what it really is, which is a falsehood um, designed by the Immortan to keep him poor and enslaved. One of the wives' cult calls him battle fodder for an old man. And it's through his relationship with Capable, the young lady who befriends Knox, that his disillusionment begins. Now, traditionally, when a half-life gives his life on the battlefield, he'll spray his mouth with silver spray paint and say the words, Witness me, meaning that he wishes God to witness him dying honorably on the battlefield so that he may be granted access to Valhalla. But when Knox surrenders his life at the fringe of the Citadel at the end of the film, he does it not only to save the woman he loves, but for the greater good of those fighting against the Immortan. And instead of saying the words to God, as he might have done earlier, he looks at capable and he asks her to witness his sacrifice. And I love this because when you abandon the concept of God, by reason or through education or however it happens, there's this misconception that you lose your moral scruples. But the truth is it makes you more moralistic because people become your faith, they become your religion, they become what gives your life meaning. And this makes Knox's transition in the film easily the most profound of all the characters. The idea that once you let go of God, your faith becomes one that faces no opposition, because love that exists between people is universally understood, and even if it were to be denied, once it's felt, no amount of reason can shake one's conviction that it is real, or that it means everything. And when Knox looks at Capable in the moment before he dies, we understand that letting go of God is equivalent to him having achieved some kind of personal growth. Character who played Immorton Joe, the actor um, Hugh Keesman, He thought that Immorton Joe's a good man who's just lost.
1: They all do. Anyone who does a method character <laughs> thinks that their character is is completely justified.
0: Yeah, I- do you think Max is Max is really
2: the only physically physically and mentally able person in this movie?
0: No, I think he's one of the most insane warped characters in the film.
2: So there's nobody then? Matthew,
0: there's uh, nobody.
2: There's nobody. That what? that is completely physically and mentally able.
0: Nobody is stable, nobody is okay in this film. I'm not
2: saying
1: stable, I'm saying disabled. They are all disabled in some way. Yes. Can we talk about um the performances of Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron? Cuz I think I think what's really good is like we you know when we heard about um like we watched the film Misery and you would and I remember Luke you told me that so many male actors in Hollywood gave up, like De Niro and stuff didn't want that role because they were being they were a lesser character than the female character
0: yeah or more that they were like infirm in bed and being put upon by a woman yeah I guess it was um, emasculating.
1: Yeah, and I, lo- I I love the fact that, like, in all the press and stuff, you see, like, Tom Hardy's like, this is Furiosa's film as well. Like, a lot of people, a lot of wanky actors would be like, oh, I think we've both got our own journeys and all that kind of stuff. But he's just like, no, I'm, like, a complete side character to, yeah. to Furiosa, which I thought was interesting. I think Tom Hardy is one of those actors that just feels like he's a ridiculously handsome bulldog. Like, the way he moves in that film is just so scattered... And so brutal. There's no grace to him yeah. in that film, and I think that's I think that's a really interesting way of dealing with it because I feel like Mel Gibson's character has a lot more grace.
0: Oh, definitely.
1: Um, and I, I liked his like his take a, on
0: it. A psychosis in the way he moves. You know how when people are psychotic and they have this incredible yeah. strength? That's how it feels. It feels like a psychotic person running through this movie. And the way he,
1: when he says, my name is Max. And obviously, I know you love that line. Love it. But I love the way he gives it. As well.
0: When he says that, that's the equivalent. That's as close as he's going to ever come to saying that he loves her. Yep. Yep. You know, and that's why he is so disabled, mentally warped and disabled. He, can't, he That is as close as he can come to admitting affection for somebody else.
2: I think um, that's one of the, for me, that's one of the main themes of this movie is uh, the study of disability.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, the um, the scene where Max and Furiosa have their first fight and, you know, it's this incredible fight that's there's guns, there's ropes, there's chains, they get pulled back, pulled forth, you know, and it's who's got the gun, is it loaded? George Miller told the choreographer, "Make it a love story." And in a way, the film kind of is a love story, but it's the most bizarre love story you'll probably ever see.: it's
1: Between an amputee and a crazy man. a
3: weekend.
0: The most challenging and wonderful moment for me in the film is, you know, when Furiosa returns to the Citadel, Max gets her there, they present a Morton Joe's mangled body, she's lifted up to become his successor, and she looks on, you know, looks on for Max, this guy she's come to rely on, and and she finds he isn't there. She sees him disappearing into the crowd, and instead of being confused or feeling betrayed she just sort of gives him this almost imperceptible but very definite nod of acknowledgement. And it's sort of a thank you, and it's also setting him free. And it's such a deeply mature and adult moment in the film. To anyone who's known, known true pain or loss, it makes total sense. You know, we like to believe in today's PC age that we can get over everything, but some things you can't get over. Some things damage you, and that is that The loss of his family, his children, it's made him incapable of being responsible for anyone but himself. He just doesn't know how to do it anymore. He must go his own way. And Furiosa, as a survivor of the same kind of awfulness, she gets this. And so, in a sense, his walking away is an acknowledgement of Max's limitations as a man, but it's gratitude for his strength as a fighter. That's the depth of their understanding for one another. And if that isn't a love story, I don't know what is. So apparently, you know, Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron, there was a bit of friction between them, but near the end of the shoot, he left a self-portrait of himself in Theron's trailer with a note that read, You are an absolute nightmare, but you are also fucking awesome. I'll kind of miss you. Love, Tommy. (laughs) Well, that was interesting. We should talk as well, just briefly, about how there's, you know, because everyone comments on how there's no dialogue in this film. Miller said about that, that in a post-apocalyptic world, he thought that dialogue would be exclusively functional. He said uh, there's a very specific language in Fury Road, but people don't do it recreationally and they don't think aloud because they're an extremist. They don't have time to think aloud. I think one of the film's strengths is that there's no dialogue. I remember my housemate said to me that he thought that there was no dialogue or he'd heard there was no dialogue because they wanted it to appeal to an international market. So they just kept it very, very minimal. But I, I think it was probably more of an artistic choice than a... A kind of cynical financial It's not a
1: huge amount of dialogue in the other Mad Max films it's not that interesting
0: I think there's less I think Tom Hardy I think says about 50 lines of dialogue if you don't include grunts but I think in one of the Mad is Max it films is that much mm. yeah
1: right.
0: but in like, I think Mad Max 2 or Mad Max 1 must be Mad Max 2 there's only about 16 or 17 lines of dialogue for Mel Gibson hmm
1: the technical specs are it's a very very long and convoluted story as to sort of how it ended up coming to be uh, George Miller's first digital film. Dean Semler was obviously originally going to shoot the film but left for very amicable reasons from what I've heard. I imagine it was probably just the time. It was originally going to be shot in stereo 3D with like two cameras but the main obstacle to this was how many shots they needed to be inside the cab of the truck. They can't. You can't. You couldn't physically get a 3D 3D rig through the window. For all the tech nerds out there, they were shot on Arri Alexa M's and Arri Alexa Plus studio cameras, which are still very cutting edge technology, but quite small. And some shots were used with the Black Black Blackmagic Cinema Camera, and some shots were done on the 5D Mark II, which is. If anyone knows their cameras out there, that's pretty crazy that those cameras were used in this sort of film. Um, I know that John Seal brought in the notion of multiple cameras, um, whereas George Miller was pretty opposed to doing that. Uh, it was, yeah, it was really going to be shot on the Dulcer camera, which is like a military-grade 4K uh, camera. He used the Alexas because the Dolce cameras lacked the required, like, contrast ratios to be able to move from the cab of a truck to pull out into the Namibian desert and still get exposure because I think it had, like, a latitude of, like, five stops, which is not, like, ridiculously nothing. There's this funny story, and I'll link you to this, um, we linked this into the show notes, there's, like, a a two-hour Australian cinematographer's presentation that John Seal gives about the production of Mad Max and how and and visually how much they went through it's really interesting goes for two and a half hours one of the things that he kind of came to terms with is like they were going to be shooting a lot of um, obviously in cab truck stuff but he'd seen some of the tests that Dean Semler had done and because the cab of the truck was black he would have to rig these humongous Fresnel HMI lights to the front of like and they were just doing tests in a studio to be able to get exposure so the cab's exposed and then they pull out and they've got a, the exposure for the for the desert and they couldn't and he couldn't do it so that's why they went to um, Ari Alexis and being and using the edge arm um which is like a huge uh, gyroscopic camera that are worth like a million dollars each but yeah and it was originally going to be shot in 3d but then they went to to a 2D uh, post-conversion. I don't know if you guys have seen the 3D version. I think when I went to the cinema the first time, I think I saw it in 3D. I'm not a huge 3D fan. I don't care, but it was done competently. And then we've got the like the changes in format. So we've got the the 3D, the, the main release version, which is what mostly we're talking about, and then obviously the black and chrome version, which I think I'm really interested to know what you guys what your take on that was. When I saw the the main version, I thought it was one of the most aesthetically pleasing films I've seen in recent memory. I think to be able to do in a post-apocalyptic film where colour is amped and not desaturated is a bold choice and surprise that no one has done that before, but it looked beautiful. When I saw the black and chrome edition, I actually watched it last night. The feeling is so different to me. Like, I think, um, like, obviously some detail was lost. Like, you lose a bit of the punch when Furiosa rips... The Morton Joe's face off because you don't see that red, that crazy visceral red blood. But having said that, I found myself more focused on narrative.
0: What did you think, Damien? Because you saw the chrome and the 3D.
1: I prefer the film in colour. The black and
2: chrome version allows you to focus on the, the framing and a lot of the detail of the film. This film's insanely detailed. Quite texturally as well. It's, like, it's just a really sharp movie yeah the black and Chrome's interesting it ties in with the idea that Fury Road or Mad Max in general is this sparse sparse in nature uh, few words spoken. I think it ties into that. Does a good job, really interesting to watch. I prefer the colour version, and that's probably because I prefer the blues and the oranges that are in the colour version. They're just really beautiful colour palette. I think if you go to our Pinterest page, there's a lot of posters and images on Mad Max Fury Road, and you can see those colours that are really dominating this movie. And it's just really beautiful the way that they chose those colours. Now, the 3D version. I would say none of us are really fans of 3D.
0: Not particularly.
2: Hate it. Right. Okay. Okay. So that's not, I don't think that's really a slight too much on the technology, but more a a statement on its use. Um, And there haven't been many great 3D movies, rather (coughs) nearly a heap of shit that's used 3D to sell tickets.
1: Well, what about Friday the 13th Part (laughs)
2: 3? If there's one movie that's ever made me think twice about it, it's this one. This is a perfectly good film in 2D and everything works as it should. And then you watch it in 3D and it blew me away. This is my favourite version of the movie. The 3D version of the movie. It doesn't try to be gimmicky. It doesn't try the, uh, hey, look, we shot this in 3D just for the hell of it sequences or converted this
1: to 3D just for the hell of Except it. Except the crash of something war the other truck and all that stuff th- flies at the screen. Yeah, but I,
2: I mean, there's a few shots like that. I, I mean, they work so well in 2D Uh, it's not like you're looking at it in 2D going I wish I was watching this in 3D because they obviously shot it for that and there's no part of the movie that feels like that to me it it feels great in 2D I, I mean Luke I know you don't like 3D but you love this movie and I think that you just got to watch it in there because I think it'll change your mind a little bit. The same way it has with me, it's, it's opened up my mind about 3D movies. I, I would consider, it made me want to go out and buy more 3D movies to watch at home. There's two ways that 3D movies are shot. The first method is with uh, uh, two cameras, one for the left and one for the right image and they're set at a distance that closely resembles the distance between the pupils of the eyes avatar tron legacy the hobbit and its sequels the martian prometheus hugo the life of pi all of those were shot with two cameras and the second method is one camera is used and the film is shot normally uh, and then the image is separated into different depths and a second slightly offset image is created and films shot with this method include all of the marvel movies beauty and the beast gravity jurassic world star wars the force awakens alice in wonderland and mad max fury road I guess I always had this idea that the films that were shot with two cameras would be better in 3D but I think the technology is at such a point now that that's not the case anymore Mm. Um, and I know that Avatar was such so hugely hyped as this new 3D technology shot with these special cameras and everything. The fact that Mad Max now has made me think twice about 3D movies and Avatar really didn't do too much for me. Uh, it's a shocking movie, but even in 3D, the 3D didn't do too much for me. So I think the technology is there in, in whichever format is chosen, that the action can look good in 3D. And now it just needs to be supported with a story. Mad Max Fury Road was released into cinemas on May 15, 2015. And grossed forty-five point four million dollars in its first weekend, which is pretty good. But it finished second to Pitch Perfect 2. It did, however, last in cinemas for 19 weeks and grossed a total in the US of 153 million. And outside of the United States it grossed a further two hundred and twenty-four million dollars. And that included sixteen million in Australia, eighteen million that's all in US dollars, eighteen million in France and twenty seven million in both South Korea and the UK. And it was denied, as you said, Luke. Uh, a release in the world's second biggest market, China, and that was apparently due to its intense nature. So it grossed about $380 million on a $150 million budget, which is a decent, if not spectacular, return. Critically, it was a different story, as the film would receive huge praise. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, second only that year to The Revenant, which also starred Tom Hardy, so he had a pretty good year. And those nominations included Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography and Best Visual Effects. It became the most successful Australian film ever at the Oscars by winning six awards, which were Best Sound Editing and Best Sound Mixing, Best Production Design, Best Makeup Effects, Best Costume Design and Best Film Editing. So, the most successful Australian film ever. Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes rankings show Fury Road as the best reviewed film of 2015. Uh, 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, RogerEbert.com named it the best film of the year. Ben Sachs of the Chicago Reader said, Even after two viewings, I feel as though I've only scratched the surface of Mad Max Fury Road. George Miller's action fantasy is astonishingly dense for a big-budget spectacle, not only in its imagery and ideas, but in the complex interplay between them. In a sense, Fury Road has been gestating since the late 1970s when Miller first envisioned the character of Mad Max and the nightmarish future Australia he inhabits. The movie builds upon motifs from Miller's original t- trilogy with Mel Gibson, though so it's not a sequel but a complete reimagining of the world in those films. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone said, Mad Max Fury Road kicked my ass hard, it'll kick yours, so get prepped for a new action classic, you won't know what hit you. Really intelligent reviewers of Rolling Stone. <laughs> A.O. Scott of the New York Times said it's worth paying a few more dollars for 3D. That newfangled format brings out the virtuosity of Mr. Miller's old school approach. The themes of vengeance and solidarity, the wide open spaces and the kinetic ground level movement mark Fury Road as a western and the filmmakers pay tribute to such masters of the genre as John Ford. Todd McCarthy of The Hollywood Reporter said, 30 years after surviving Thunderdome, the reluctant warrior of modern movies' first and most memorable post-apocalyptic action fantasy series is finally back and ready for more. George Miller has directed only five films in that time, three of which starred pigs and penguins, but it can safely be said that this madly entertaining new action extravaganza energetically kicks more ass as well as all other parts of the anatomy than any film ever made by a 70-year-old and does so far more skillfully than those turned out by most young Turks half his age.
0: Alright guys, are you ready to find out who is going to be the Citadel's successor? <laughs>
1: <laughs> they are full of
0: full of really bad puns. (laughs) So (laughs) So this is a
1: reference to the quiz, I am ready.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, who'd like to go first? Damien. Okay, I guess I'll go first. Which other prodigy Australian filmmaker did cinematographer John Seale shoot four movies with? Uh, Philip Noyce? Peter Weir. Oh. Cameron, um, what was the first Mad Max film to be nominated for an Academy Award?
1: Fuck you. (laughs) Uh, this was, like, a trick question. I'm going to say... I'm going to say Road Warrior. Fury Road. Oh, see, I knew it was a trick question. I would have
0: said Fury Road. No, well, okay, you just get your own questions this round. Damien, which director did George Miller contact to ask what Tom Hardy would be like on set? Whoever directed Bronson, uh, it was Christopher Nolan, who had worked with Tom Hardy on Inception.
2: Oh, and Dark Knight
0: rises. Was Tom no. Hardy in *Inception*? Looks like there's going to be some sort of leadership spill at the Citadel at this point. Oh God, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Cameron. Roughly, how many vehicles were built by production designer Colin Gibson for *Fury Road*? <laughs>
1: Don't <Damien's> mean signalling four. <laughs> to me. uh, I'm going to say. I'm going to say 30
0: 150 Is that, is that roughly okay. correct? Oh yeah, around 150 okay. Definitely not around 30 Damien, what two films from the Mad Max franchise were shot almost entirely in chronological order?
2: Um, Fury Road Entirely
0: in chronological order And? Uh, Road Warrior Yes, finally, someone won something. Cameron, what famous episodic play was feminist writer Eve Ensler famous for? The vagina monologue. Yes. Okay. What the fuck? Look, we have a tie, so I think we better do a couple. Did she more. do
2: something to do with this movie? She Probably. flew
0: down to Namibia to instruct the.
2: For what, what are you whispering? For what purpose? To, in- to read the vagina monologues. Oh, it was you know, interesting. To, no give, a fa- to give a
0: feminist
1: perspective on how to.
0: Talk about sexual oh, right. slavery and oppressed women. Okay, um, Damien. Is it were? me? No. Sorry. <laughs> I believe it is my turn. Um, Damien, where were the shots of the Citadel photographed? Namibia. Sydney. Oh, fuck. Warner Brothers originally cut the shots from the schedule to save on the budget, but put them back in once filming in Namibia was completed. Uh, okay, well, we still don't have a winner, so we'll try another one. Cameron, before Fury Road, what was the last American R-rated movie directed by Miller? Which is the Beast Yes. Okay, Cameron, takes the Citadel by force. <sighs> Stop with your <laughs> fucking Warhammer
1: kind of shit.
0: Okay, oh. uh, Davian, rating out of five? Four and a half. Four and a half is wrong It's a five star film Cameron
1: I'm going to give it A solid five star
2: <laughs> I think this film Can only grow in stature Over time I think it will too I give it four and a half So that I can move With it Name a better action film Than
1: this Die Hard Incorrect
0: Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. That concludes episode 12 of Celluloid Junkies, uh, our second episode of season two. We're all very happy you're still with us. Uh, Our audience is slowly growing. Um, We're getting a lot lot of downloads and a lot of likes, and we are very, very grateful to you. Next month is going to be Halloween. So we've decided to do a creepy movie. We're going to look at Toby Hooper's 1982 horror film Poltergeist which should be pretty interesting and make sure that you go out and uh, rent it or watch it again and then join us and uh, yeah, be part of the conversation. Thank you very much and have a great month. We'll see you later.